Good morning. Merry Christmas. Well, there are, uh, I am, uh, my ancestry is Scottish. There are two ways you can know that. My last name is Robertson, which is very Scottish. And the pasty whiteness of my skin tone. <laughs> That's the other way to know it. My, uh, I'm a second generation American. My grandparents came to the United States in the early 20s. Born in 1902 in Glasgow, Scotland, and um, like many others, came over and sought a better life. And, uh, you know, one of the most popular websites now is, you know, Ancestry.com. Now, I have a, just a little gripe with Ancestry.com. Yesterday during basketball, uh, I don't know if they think men watching basketball want to know about Ancestry.com. <laughs> Or what, but there were four commercials, so must be popular. Why are we doing this? Because we want to know what, where we came from, right? Now, my family, I don't go back too many generations to where I don't want to know anymore <laughs> where, where we came from. I don't, you know, I'm just going with the fact that that guy in Braveheart, William Wallace, I'm related to him. That, that's what I'm going with. Well, we, uh, today, we are going to look at this idea of ancestry. Today is really a bridge message, if you will. We are in a series called The One, looking at Jesus Christ, The One. And uh, Pastor Steve will finish this series up tomorrow night on Christmas Eve. But this is also the first message in a new series that we're going to be starting that will go through most of 2013. And we're going to be studying the book of Matthew together. And so we start today. So this is the ending kind of of one series and the beginning of another. First time that's ever happened in the history of New Life, where we're doing two things at one time. And those of you who are around here enough know that typically, when I speak, I somehow draw the short straw on passages. So I want, if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to just, don't read it, just glance at the first 17 verses of Matthew. The fact that the word Aminadab is in it should give you a clue of what's happening today. In all honesty, uh, six, eight weeks ago we were going through who was going to preach and Pastor Steve asked me to speak this weekend and I saw this passage and I had the same kind of response you did, which was, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> but I can tell you that this morning, I am totally psyched to be able to share with you what God has for us in these first 17 verses of Matthew. They are not what I expected. They are not spiritual flyover country. They are so much more. We are going to look today at the genealogy of the king. Now let me start by giving us a kind of an overview of the book of Matthew because we're going to be in it for a while and I want us to kind of understand where we're going and build a base upon um, which we can move from here. The book of Matthew is a connection with the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament canon there is instead of first and second Chronicles there's just the book of Chronicles and it finishes out the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures. The first nine chapters of Chronicles are a massive 
genealogy. I'm sure you have all carefully read them. It is a genealogy, a history from Adam, generation by generation. Chronicles is thought by many theologians to be the history of Israel on behalf of the nations through the family line of David with a focus on the eternal Davidic kingship. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. We'll look at this point throughout this message, but let me say this. Throughout Chronicles, we see God shown and proven to be the sovereign king of the nations. Matthew was written by, it's not a trick question, Matthew, good, some of you still wondered, you should be in church more. It's written by Matthew, also known as Levi, he was a disciple. The book of Matthew was actually written after the book of Mark, but it is placed first in the New Testament to form that bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The idea was, as a Jewish reader in the first century, you would read the book of Chronicles, and then the book of Matthew, and they would both have these genealogies, showing that this started in the Old Testament, and it continues through Jesus. In other words, the Gospel of Matthew is meant to help the Jewish nation to see that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Matthew is one of four Gospels in the Bible. The others are Mark, Luke, and John. And each tells the story of Jesus' life or the story of the Gospel from a different perspective. Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant. Luke, I believe because he was a doctor, presents Jesus as the Son of Man. He focuses on Jesus' humanity. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God. And the theme and focus of Matthew is this, Jesus as the sovereign king. There are five major divisions in the book of Matthew, and this is going to be important as we read through it over this next year, because it will help you kind of understand what's going on. They take the form this way. There are a series of narratives or stories, and those focus on the king's identity. And each of those follows a teaching or a discourse from Jesus that's being addressed in those teachings. So we have this idea of narratives, these stories, that follow a discourse or a teaching, and the teachings focus on the king's people. Jesus teaches about how we should live. And then there are narrative stories of what happened with Jesus and his disciples that show, and this is how this works out. This is what Jesus did based on this teaching. Now chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew are essentially introductory material. And the structure of Matthew is interesting is, is that it's not chronological. After you get past chapter 4, it moves into really a topical study. A topical uh, way of presenting, here's Jesus teaching, now I'm going to tell you some stories that happened, some things that happened in his life that show these teachings and that build on them. And then there's another section of teachings and more stories. And this continues throughout the 26 chapters of Matthew. Sometimes the teachings are a chapter or two, followed by up to three, four, and sometimes five chapters of narratives or stories. And each of those sections, here's how you're going to know whether you're at the end of a section. Whether you're at the end of one of Jesus' teachings and then into a story section. 
a very similar phrase finishes out each of Jesus' teaching sections. Let's look at them. Chapter 7, verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Chapter 11, verse 1, the end of the second section of Jesus' teaching. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Chapter 13, verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Chapter 19, verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And finally, in chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. So as you're going through, mark those verses, those five verses, and you can know, okay, what came before them was a section of teaching. Now that teaching's ended. Now there's going to be some narrative of what took place that will build on that teaching. Another interesting thing about the book of Matthew is that it contains 55 references or quotations from the Old Testament. Now this is unusual in that that is compared to only 65 references to the Old Testament in the other three Gospels combined. Matthew is very concerned especially that his Jewish readers will see the prophetic fulfillment of their Messiah in his writings. So he extensively quotes and refers to Old Testament passages. So that's the book of Matthew in kind of a sweeping overview. And that's what we're going to be doing these next several months with some little stops along the way for uh, some different things and for holidays and those kind of things. But we'll keep plowing through the book of Matthew. Now some of us who have been through like the book of 1 Corinthians, half the length of the book of Matthew, know that we could be at this a while, okay? We'll keep it interesting, we promise. So you say, okay, so we're going to see the genealogy of the king. What in the world is a genealogy? Well, much like someone would do on Ancestry.com, that's what it is. It, is an, it may echo the Greek name Genesis, in this word genealogy in English. More likely it could be rendered origins. Origins. So either way, the point is that the genealogies are about the details of where someone came from, in this case, Jesus. His origins, where this began. So that's what a genealogy is. Now what makes Matthew's genealogy so special? Well, several things. First, it does not list every person, as does Chronicles, within the generations of this line of David. It is incomplete, but it is not inaccurate. The author, Matthew, just uses it for his own purposes. Kind of like this. He employs a methodology called gematria, which is where the Hebrew names match with a number attached to them. This was very common. So your name, you could pick, you know, if your name is Matthew, maybe that's, a, that's a, each letter would be attached to a number and then that would be kind of the number that you had, your number. In this genealogy we see that there is a number that Matthew is a little obsessed with. Let's look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 
generations. What number is Matthew trying to get across? 14. Very good. The questions will get harder as we move along. This is important because 14 is the number attached to King David's name. And Matthew, in a very sly way, is trying to consistently connect us to the fact that Jesus came from the line of David. That this number is consistent. This number 14 is consistent. So Matthew's point here is not to give a full person-by-person genealogy, but to give us these quick 14-generation sections of the genealogy. It's also interesting because of this. It's the genealogy of Joseph. Who was Joseph? Joseph was Jesus. Yeah, nobody's been able to like say it. What is it? Who was Joseph? He was this guy, and he's, I see him there in the nativity. <laughs> Slightly taller than the merit. Anyway, who was Joseph? Here's who Joseph was. He was Jesus' adoptive father. You see, adoption has an important place in the gospel message. Those of us who are Christ followers are all adopted as children of God. We are adopted just as adoption is today through the initiation of our Father. He has initiated it, not us. And I have to wonder whether God specifically wanted Jesus to be an adopted son as another identification with and picture of life in the family that he was creating. You see, Christ's followers are all adopted into this family. Jesus was an adopted son. It's also the only genealogy in Scripture to contain the names of women. This just doesn't happen. So something's going on here. Matthew's trying to get a point across. Why? Well, it could be that Matthew is signaling the truth that in the New Covenant, there is no distinction between men and women within the children of God. That we are equal before God. It's interesting that of the five women listed, four of them are Gentiles. They aren't even Jewish. I believe this is possibly to emphasize that Gentiles, under this new covenant, are now incorporated into the people of God, as well as a few other possibilities that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So Matthew is saying, we are all adopted into this family There is equality before the cross. Equality in this family. Equality as children of God. Not men and women. Not Gentiles or Jews. That's what makes Matthew's genealogy so special. So let's start and pull apart the truth in Matthew chapter 1. Let's read verse 1. Follow along as I read it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. First we see this phrase, the book of the genealogy. Some scholars believe that this reference to the book is that the entire book of Matthew, or at least the first four chapters, are an explanation of the origins of Jesus. I believe it would be the first four chapters. That this is where Jesus came from. This is his history. Then we see the word Jesus. 
In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The first thing that Matthew is saying is that Jesus is Savior. He is this Emmanuel. He is this God with us. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. In verse 21 of this first chapter, an angel comes and speaks to Joseph about Mary. And the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, Joshua, who was he? He was the appointed, appointed leader who would lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Remember, Moses dies. Joshua becomes the leader. He's appointed by God to be the leader of the people into the promised land. And now Jesus, Yahweh, the Savior, has been appointed by the Father to lead sinful humans into the promised land of eternal life. He is the Savior. Matthew does not accidentally use this word. Then he adds to it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. More accurately, Jesus the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It literally, it literally means Messiah or anointed one. And as we'll see, the Old Testament is filled with promises of a coming Messiah who would deliver God's people. Matthew is saying, you've been waiting for this Messiah? You've been waiting for this Christ, this anointed one? This is it. He's here. This is the one that you have been waiting for, Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. See, to Jewish readers of this in the first century, this would have said, the book of genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah you have been waiting for, better read on. This is good stuff. It says, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. This idea of being the son of David is that Jesus fulfills a prophetic promise. This is the announcement that the Messiah King is here. As we've seen already, the Messiah was to come from the kingly line of David. And Matthew makes sure to show that Jesus is the promised heir to the throne. Listen to these prophecies from the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Prophetic words about the one true judge coming in the line of David, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness, our salvation. In Ezekiel 37, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall ha all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Jesus fulfilled the prophetic promise of an eternal king in the line of David. After he refers to Jesus as the son of David, Matthew refers to him as the son of Abraham. You see, not only was Jesus a fulfillment of prophetic promise, he fulfilled a covenant promise. A covenant made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and repeated three more times just so Abraham would know it was true. In chapter 12 of Genesis we see this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And to you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's eternal, lasting covenant with his people Israel. Jesus came to completely fulfill and complete that covenant. Now, interestingly enough, most covenants are made between two people. This covenant, this covenant of Abraham, was completed by one person. Only God made the covenant, and he keeps his covenant. You know, another interesting little tidbit here is that this genealogy begins with Abraham and his son. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Remember Isaac? A miracle baby, born to a mother who shouldn't have been able to be a mother. You see, Sarah was close to 100 years old. It ain't over, ladies. It ain't over. <laughs> she was nearly a hundred years old, yet she was blessed with a son who is in the line of another miracle baby. That baby boy completes the genealogy in verse 16. Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. By the way, that son's mom was pretty astonished to be giving birth to. Because under the circumstances, it was an impossibility. Matthew begins his genealogy with a miracle birth and completes his genealogy with the ultimate miracle birth that would change the world. Well, now let's get into the genealogy itself. We've taken a few minutes, and that's just verse 1. 
I promise they won't all take that long. Now, a bit of confession time here before we go on. How many of you have come to these type of passages, starting in verse 2 and said, I'm going to skip this part and get to the good stuff? Anybody? Okay. Let me see if I can change your mind. I think maybe you'll never look at genealogies the same way. At least that's my hope. I have worked really hard at being able to read this. By the way, expectant parents, lots of good baby names coming up. All right, here we go. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now let's stop. Tamar is the first woman in this listing. What's the significance here? Remember I said this is the only genealogy that lists women, and I think there's a purpose for it, other than just this new covenant idea that we are all equal before God. The story of Tamar is in Genesis 38. Tamar was a Canaanite Gentile. Here's her story. She disguises herself as a prostitute and then commits incestuous sex with her father-in-law, Judah, and has a son, Perez. Lovely woman. What is going on here? Let's keep reading. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Here's our second woman. Rahab's story is found in Joshua 2 and then again in Joshua 6. She was a Gentile who lived in a city called Jericho. Recognize that? Rahab's business card <laughs> was that she was a prostitute. But she helped the Jewish spies as Israel was entering into the promised land and helped Israel conquer this town called Jericho. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. And Rahab became a part of the people of Israel. And here she shows up, along with Tamar, in the genealogy of the king. Let's keep reading. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by, and here's our third woman, Ruth. Ruth was also a Gentile. She was a Moabitess. Moabites were known to be a people rampant with sexual immorality. At one point, it was so bad that they were totally left out of interaction with the people of God. And yet, this woman Ruth, her entire story is a book of the Old Testament, obeys God, honors her promises, and becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Did you lose your place like I did? Oh, there we go. Okay. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. How many generations have we come? Fourteen. From Abraham to David, there were fourteen generations. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's stop. Here's our fourth woman. 
She apparently is so bad that she didn't get her name put in here. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. They were Hittites, not Jews. Gentiles again. Her name was Bathsheba. Yeah, cross that off your baby name list. No. There's no way to even abbreviate it. You just can't do it. Okay? What happens with Bathsheba? Well, her husband's away at war. David sees her bathing, takes her, commits adultery with her, murders her husband to hide the sin of an unwanted pregnancy. They have a son who dies because of that sin. But he also had a son, Solomon. Later called the wisest man ever to live. Now I question that with all those wives, but we'll just leave it. (laughs) He had a son, Solomon, who continued the line of the king. Keep reading. And Solomon, it gets, it gets, this gets rough here. Okay. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And we've come how many more generations? Fourteen. There you go. You're getting it. You're getting it. What happened in these fourteen generations? Well, this is a list of kings leading up to the exile or the slavery in Babylon. Most of these were evil kings who led the people of God astray and into destruction. You see, each name contains a story that those who were first reading it would have known. This would be like if we had a listing of the presidents and we get to certain names and you go, oh, mm, not good. (laughs) These would have been known by the the Jews reading this, this passage, this genealogy. And they'd have felt a severe reaction to it because it reminded them of the worst times within the Jewish nation. The slavery in Babylon. Now we move from the exile of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 12. Now Jeconiah rates because he gets his name repeated twice. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." This is one wacky family tree, right? Yet, it is the family through which the Son of God miraculously stepped into human history. Certainly, we can see that God does not follow anyone's preconceived ideas and expectations about how and when He will do anything. 
Israel's history is marked by scandal or at best perceived scandal. And yet, the king of kings comes through this messed up line of people. God miraculously uses the sins and mistakes of people to keep that line going. So now you can officially mark that as a section of scripture that you have read. Or at least heard read. Christmas Eve tomorrow night we'll have several of you stand and spontaneously quote (laughs) this passage. You see, to those reading this for the first time, when it was written, this passage had massive ramifications. Those early Christians, those Jews and even Gentiles who were placing their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they had lost their families, their possessions, and they were facing the possibility of losing their lives. But in the midst of this boring list is Matthew's challenging them with the truth that their sacrifice is not in vain. It is the one who is worthy of that kind of devotion and admiration who Matthew points them to. That God will accomplish through their suffering, through all that takes place through the persecution coming. Don't lose hope. God is still in charge. He will do what he plans to do because he is king. And because he is king, I believe that this passage has some kingdom implications for us today. Let me share these with you. One, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He alone is the one center of human history. Like it or not, you and I are not the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of human history. These first 17 verses of Matthew are not just a boring list of old dead people, but a bold claim that there is one, the one around whom everything revolves. He is the king. I believe this has implications for us in this room this morning. You see, if Jesus is king, then he has rule and reign over each of our lives. And the reason that you are even here, the reason that you and I exist is to know and follow this king and to make his kingdom known to all people. It's all about Jesus. The second ramification is that God saves by his sovereign grace. God saves by his sovereign grace. Matthew 1 is full of adulterers and murderers and liars, rebels against God, people in all forms of sexual sin. Jesus' ancestors included People who hated God. Clearly though, Jesus came not because of Israel's righteousness, but in spite of Israel's sinfulness. Even the evil kings in this list were never out from under the supreme will of God. God's plan for salvation was always in place, always moving forward. Nothing surprised him. You see, our names could be on this list of sinners, couldn't it? But God delights in saving immoral, sinful outcasts. 
And he also delights in saving self-righteous, got-it-all-together suburbanites. We all need his grace. Think about Matthew. Matthew, who wrote this, was a tax collector. One of the most reviled positions in that time. Oh, wait, some things don't change. But anyway, (laughs) Matthew made a living by ripping off fellow Jewish citizens. But God didn't save him based on his merits. God saved him based solely upon his own mercy on him. It was mercy, not merit, that saved the writer of this passage that reminds us that God's sovereign grace saves. It is God who initiates his love and his adoption toward us. Ramification number three. The gospel is the message of a kingdom. As we learned in the series Epic here just a couple months back. The gospel is the message of a kingdom, but more importantly, it's the message of a king. The central message of Jesus' words in the New Testament is this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' call was to repentance, to admit that our way, dependent on our own good attempts, is never going to be good enough. And to turn and go in another direction toward Jesus with a full realization that only he in his righteousness, can save me. The gospel is the message of a king who came to save. And last, there's an implication that's going to come as we study this book. Throughout our study of Matthew, we'll discover three types of people. Three groups of people, and I think those three kinds of people are also in this room today. The question is, which of these groups are you going to be in? The first group is those who completely and pridefully reject Jesus and his claims as king. Those who say, not for me, I got this, I'm good. The second and largest group are the crowds. Those who casually observe Jesus. Who are willing to associate but never truly know him. They are the people in the pews who come and say, well, it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll walk into a building once a week. I'll even be kind of involved. But they don't truly know him. How about today? And then the third group are those who, like the disciples, unconditionally follow Jesus. Who rise and say, you are the king. And because you are the king, there are no conditions on my obedience to you. I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will do whatever you ask of me. I will give whatever you tell me to give. I will abandon all that I am and all that I have to follow you. Because you are the king. And you are worthy of nothing less than my all. In which group do you fall today? Pridefully and completely rejecting Jesus and his claims to being king of your life? Are you in the crowd 
observing but not truly knowing him? Or are you disciple, unconditionally following the king? Let's bow our heads. Quiet ourselves before this king. No moving around here for just a moment if we can. What is God saying to you today? Through this passage that most of us have skipped over. Is he saying anything? Is there a tightening in your chest or a thought that you just can't get out of your mind? That could be God. Has truth caused you to do a gut check? Maybe as someone who's already a Christ follower... Or as someone who has yet to know, name Jesus Christ as king. What's he saying to you? Is this the day when you need to bow your knee before this king? And acknowledge his sovereign grace in your life. And give your life to him. Our prayer partners will come, are going to come and be here at the front. If God is doing something in you, maybe you don't even understand what it is he's trying to say and what's going on, come and share with them what you're sensing and what you're hearing from God right now. They want to join you in what's taking place. Or you can come, as many of us need to do as Christ followers, to come here to this altar and bow our knee before our king and say to him once again, you are my king, I am all yours. I acknowledge again your kingship in my life. Father, move in our midst. Father, we are grateful that even in obscure passages of Scripture that you speak truth to us. Today, there are those who need to acknowledge you as king of their life that your grace is settling in on them. May they acknowledge that today and give their life fully to you. God, may many of us come to these altars and bow our knee at this Christmas time once again. Not at a straw bed, but at a throne. At the foot of our King, we worship and honor you.